0: Well hello everyone, welcome to Coaches on the Couch. I'm Louise and I'm Rachel and today we're delighted to welcome Paul Monaghan of Alford Hall Monaghan and Morris, usually known as AHMN for obvious reasons, to our virtual couch. So hello Paul and welcome. Hi there. And before we get into anything else let's chat couches. Please tell us something interesting about your couch.
1: Yeah well um, I suppose we we've we've got a few couches and the last one we had was um, a sort of Terence Woodgate one that um, has gone through two young children with chocolate and ice cream and all the other things, which doesn't look quite as handsome as it did when we bought it. Mm. So when we did a, a sort of renovation on our house, we decided to try and pick another sofa. Um, my wife, Alicia, as some of you know, is an architect too. and We very rarely agree on anything. Um, and we happened to be walking around Habitat one Saturday, looking for, I think, for some Cutlery or something, and we came across this sofa that we, we thought was rather, rather good. A 19, so it looks like a 1960s classic design sofa, and we decided to get it in green velvet, which um, um, green is a color I often use in, in the architecture that we do. So, um, so now we have that, and that's the sofa that we can get all the family sitting on. We can watch the telly, read the papers, read a book, and it's really comfy, but it's not some sort of design classic. We didn't involve SCP in this one. Well, but um, but actually, it's worked well, and it's now equally getting tatty as the other one. But uh, after only a few years, but um, but that's my safer story. Mm. Thank, you.
2: Thank you. I'm sure it's been much used over the last year or so.
1: It certainly has. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah.
2: Uh, okay. So, I mean, A H M doesn't need much of an introduction, but obviously, as a practice, you've been around for over 30 years and which I understand from the website, this is something as a surprise even to the four founders who never expected that to last that long or become the size of operation it has. Uh, Practice now has over 500 employees, offices in London, Bristol and Oklahoma. Oklahoma has always intrigued me, Paul, why Oklahoma?
1: It's quite simple, I think in the in the last recession in 2008, you know, like everyone else, we we were in trouble and thinking about other places. One of our directors, Wade Scaramucci, um, he's got a brilliant name for an architect, <laughs> um, Wade, Wade's from Oklahoma, and he suggested, why don't we go over? Then him and Simon went over, started chatting to it's a small place, but with a lot of money, with only two other architects. And um, we slowly dipped our toe in the water to the point now where we've you know, we been going there about 10 years, 11 years this year. We've got 12 people, we've got our own office, and we do more work than any other architect there. So... And we do everything there. We do weird, you know, we do, we've got the west, best whiskey bar in Oklahoma. We do social housing. We do, ha, you know, startup housing. We do offices. We do a lot of refurbishment. of. They've got lovely warehouse buildings there. And we we do quite a few one-off, quite, you know, full-on houses. So um, it's very different to the London operation, but it's something we always wanted to do. But uh, but that's, yeah, Wade really was the, um, the person who got us over there. And, and and still pretty much runs that office.
2: The practice is perhaps best known for its work on wider regeneration of places, often including the adapting and repurposing of existing buildings, including Google Berlin's new home, the White Collar Factory on Old Street Roundabout, which Louise and I used to frequent free, a lot, uh, and BBC's television centre. I quite missed the, yeah. um,
0: the public shared mm. spaces of the White Collar yeah, Factory, to be honest with you. Anyway, Paul, you're a founding partner of AHMM, And your personal back catalogue includes the Stirling prize winning Burntwood School in South London, as well as two other Stirling shortlisted buildings. And you're also an active speaker, teacher and juror, and you sit on various design panels and you're Liverpool City's region design champion. So we should tease up our first question and what we wanted to talk to you about.
2: Yeah, so I mean generosity is the theme for today. And it's a it's a theme that's written a lot about in literature. And authors like Jim Collins in his book Good to Great talks about the generosity flywheel. Um, Simon Sinek, who a lot of our listeners would have read one of his books called Leaders Eat Last, which again has a, a theme around generosity. But the reason that Louise and I thought that it was a suitable theme for today was really because a lot of the people that we know, either individually or jointly, uh, are ex AHMM. And some of those people have been guests on the pod, people like Joe Morris, obviously. And it struck us that that's probably quite unusual to be so supportive or so generous towards people setting up their own practice. It always strikes us that that's quite a special characteristic of your practice. And maybe you could start us off, Paul, by just saying a little bit about that.
1: That word of generosity is something I'm a bit uncomfortable about because it's not, you know, we are we are also very ambitious firm who like doing things with ourselves, but I think we've always been enthusiasts of architecture and all architecture and enjoyed the people of architecture and I suppose I call it more like friendships that we have within the profession and it's it's those friendships that have helped us get through hard times ourselves and therefore we recognize it when people are going hard through are going through hard times I think this all stems back to our time at BDP which is not a long time ago now I don't know if listeners and viewers know, but we, the four of us started, I met Simon at Sheffield in 1980, Pete met John in Bristol, we met at the Bartlett in 1984, and we were the only four outsiders in the Bartlett, and straight away we formed a connection together, and um, at the end of our diploma in 86, we went for a joint job and ended up working for BDP for three years um, as a team, and um, that's what you know, so we've we've never really been apart since you know since I was twenty one really. So it's a long time together. But we worked for BDP. We got on well there. Uh, you can imagine four people. We were all young lads, and we had a you know we were um, very sociable. Enjoyed the company. B- BDP a lovely company, very benevolent company. And and then we left on the same day and set up in nineteen eighty nine and um, right into a recession and. Effectively, we started working, but we were getting very little money and realised we were we were in trouble quite quickly. And it was at that point BDP came to us and said, do you want to do some work with us, just anonymously? And to be frank, the first three years of our practice, I think 80% of the turnover was the work we did with, with BDP. Wow. And, um, and we never forget that. I think early on it was easy, the first year, for them to give us work because it was on projects we'd worked on. After that, it was... It was quite frankly us going there and, and asking if they had any work, and they, they were very kind to us. And I think we'd never forgotten that because, seriously, we would. We know, we, our alternative was 150 grand for the first year, of which 120 of it was BDP money. So um, you can imagine we were in quite difficult circumstances. So I think that, that started it. I think also BDP were a benevolent firm. There were other people. There was a friend called James Soane at the time, as was a director at Conrad's. And they were, you know, getting a lot of work in at that point. Needed some help, and we, we sort of helped work with them for a little bit, just doing feasibility studies. Nothing, you know, nothing more detailed. But it was, it really helped us. There was Neil Thomas of Atelier One, helped us again. Probably about five years later, giving us some work at, on an airport uh, in the Far East, um, where they need some architectural advice. And I think with that money, that I remember, that was hundred thousand pounds fee. I couldn't we couldn't believe we could earn so much money in with one job and uh, we bought our first microstation computers at that point. And um, so I suppose there's others too, but they're the ones I sort of remember that people were helping us and 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 sometimes we were doing it anonymously, and sometimes we were not at that time, we had no name or reputation, so our name on anything didn't really matter, and we weren't we didn't care about that. so I suppose that that's how it's born, and we thought, well, that. Never forget that. Now, if I take the '80s backdrop with architects who were maybe one generation above me, so architects who are in their 60s now, there wasn't really that benevolent feeling with them. They were, there was quite a lot of arrogance in the profession at the, the end of the '80s. I think, but confidence. Obviously, we had the style wars, and you know, some of the some of the great British architects were, you know, very highly respected internationally, but um, weren't particularly known for the benevolence. I think there was a, because of the recession we came into quite early on, we did a thing called um, Under 50K for the ROBA, which we organised um, with, with Kate Trent, which was all about cheap projects, under projects that cost under 50,000 quid, because we were trying to get work for all the startup companies. And if you look who was in that exhibition, it's like from... Hawkins-Brown, caruso St. John Sabra-Cutton. Chipperfield was in it because I knew Renato and he, he, we needed a, a big name in it. Serguson and Bates, Sarah Wigglesworth. I think about 90% of them are, are big names now. And that formed a collegiate of younger firms who were all struggling. And I think what, what we found is our generation had a, a series of things where we were very friendly with each other. We'd ring each other about fees. We'd still compete against each other, but had great respect for... And I think that was completely different to the generation before me, um, where, where, where there was this sort of difference. So I suppose that's where it all started.
0: It's like you sort of held each other up because times were, weren't tough around you. And that sort of, as you say, that sort of cultural shift. Um, yeah. It's interesting, isn't it? You think about the eighties because you know we're of a similar age. And when I think about the eighties, I think of, of, um, of, of the politics of the eighties. So it's almost in, yeah. in uh, opposition to that, is that kind of, you say, collegiate, holding each other up and supporting each other, which I think is is really interesting. Yeah, I, know.
1: I mean, sorry, I was going to say, I, I mean, I don't know what, the 2008 one, obviously, we were much bigger and more powerful by then, had a reputation. So it wasn't quite such a struggle. But I always get a sense that 1991 was much worse for architecture. Uh, it was much, much tougher. And it was, Paul Finch used to describe it as the equivalent to the, the war years. And I, I do remember when Tony Blair got in, and I think then about six months later, we found, you know, all the architects found themselves in Downing Street being welcomed by Tony Blair. How creative, that suddenly realised, God, all, these, all this great talent might have an opportunity to do some significant things now. And I think obviously things like the lottery helped that, but then suddenly the increase in people being interested in designing housing again whether it be social or private housing. And it was like a real burst and came out of those dark years, those early nineties. And I think there was real optimism and, you know and it was all our friends, not all of them made it through. And there was some huge names in the exhibition that were huge then and aren't anymore. And it, it also means that it makes you realize that survival is everything. Talent doesn't always come through straight away. You don't always you know come out of the box perfect. It takes um, years and Getting through it and surviving is the critical thing. And I think that's what we learned in those 90s years.
2: I'm just wondering in those early days, Paul, that obviously you're starting, the practice is the four of you. And then at some point you took on other people and there must have been that sort of tension between um, holding on to... The control yourselves and also there's another aspect of generosity, I suppose, isn't it? And how you let others shine as they start to, to come in. I mean, how was that as you started to grow?
1: Yeah, I think, yeah, I see it less selflessly than that. I mean, it's not necessarily others shine, the, the, the people who are very talented, you let them get on with it. I mean, we always, Simon and I ran a unit at the Barlet from like 1990 to 2008 and that was a very influential time so we were mixing practice with teaching and at that point the Bartlett really became the most popular school in the country people forget that it wasn't always like that when we were there it was you know it was a good school but not really didn't have an amazing reputation but it suddenly changed and we were part of that change and obviously we'd get students who'd come from our unit to come and work for us it wasn't why we taught but it just happened to be that we'd see people so the two first, you know, two of the first people were Susie Legood and Kerry Davis, who came to us at their year out when they're 21, and are now main board directors of the firm, been with us ever since. And key parts of the firm have seen us grow from six people to 550. And But I think that collaboration thing you talk about, how you let people fly, is something that, because the four of us, it was always a negotiation when we started. You know, we weren't a single figure. We were four of us. There was always, let's put the drawings on the wall and let's quite objectively say which is the best idea. And, you know, having worked together so long, we were very quick about saying, no, Simon, I think you've got a good idea there, or Paul, you're that's. That that looks great. And it just naturally grew out of that. And we still do that now. We put the drawings on the wall or on the computer these days and we discuss and we discuss the best idea. And and I might have done some sketches, but believe it or not, I don't always say that's the best idea. Uh, You know, I, I think that way of working has always operated really well for us and allowed other people to be in the conversation.
0: This makes me think of a way of coaching, which is based on coaching within the system and one of the early earliest proponents of systemic coaching was a guy called ross akoff and he said a system is not the sum of the parts but a product of their interactions which is exactly what you've just described mm. it's almost like you create outside of the four of you you created something else which was the system and it was based on a really positive interaction where every idea had equal validity and you would give way to ideas that you recognize were better than yours. So. I think that's probably one of the strengths, you know, one of the reasons why you flourished is because you were able yeah. to create that.
1: There's a balance, there's a balance, Louise, definitely. And so some people in the office might laugh that I do that all the time. I don't always, don't believe, believe me, I don't always, I know, I suppose in my view, I know when it's right. And sometimes that might be me getting it right someone else, but I know when it's right. And I'm very clear when that happens. But I, I, I think you're actually right. I, I think teaching is in, invaluable to starting up practices. And I have to say, the one thing, the latest generation, by the latest, I'd, I'd say the people who are in their sort of 40s now don't teach quite as much as we all used to. And I felt running a unit of 18 students with Simon, you know, for 20 years or 18 years and getting the best out of them is a really good model for how you manage and design within a practice. And and in a way, it's free training, but it but it, it was a really good You know, and it it was never, we just did it. We did it because we loved teaching, we loved architecture, we loved the butler, but it did did really train your mind to, and also to let go. And I mean, I see it with different practices now. I can see some, you know, I'm pretty controlling and believe me, Simon is, as you know, in terms of what we do, but it's really important to push and pull on those things and not get in the way of someone who you might think, well, actually, they're better than me. I'm going to let them fly a bit, but I can see some architects can never let go. And if you can never let go, you're never gonna grow. And that's fine because some people don't want to grow either. You know, some people would be horrified to run the size of the firm we are. But actually we've been their size. We've been every size over the last 30 years. You know, for a long time. We were we're firm under 10 for 10 years. So we've done that. We were firm under 50 for 10 years. We've done that. Uh, and we're happy, enjoyed it. But but now we we feel we can this the size we are, we can do more work internationally, we can do bigger work and we and, and we enjoy that.
0: I love that link between teaching and and bringing out the best in people as a teacher, because let's face it, you know, you get that reflected glory when your students do very well, you know that you've done very well. And that being really good preparation for leadership in a practice, Rachel, it's really interesting, isn't it? Nobody said that before.
2: Yeah. Yeah, it is definitely. Yeah, And the other thing that was really interesting, in Paul, it was it was making me think about the difference between control and leadership. You know, a, there must be there's a well there is a big difference between maintaining control over everything ideas and that sort of thing and then having a practice with 500 people and then trying to inspire that group I mean how do you see that difference?
1: Well I suppose if I look at you know I suppose what I do personally Simon and I run two studios in the office most people know that it's sort of the way the firm works so say so roughly I'm in control of two hundred architects in the firm, and then have a number of associate directors, and then associates, then project architects. So I suppose I work through that. Projects have different pressures at different times. So if you're doing a competition, there's a lot of pressure every day of the week to try and get that to work because any competition at the moment, people are really going for. So you really have to try hard to win them. So there's a lot of pressure, a lot of input for me. I think my role really does become which idea should we go for. You know, I, I'm pretty at the forefront of those things, not necessarily coming up with all the ideas. I might sometimes, but I would be common. So, so there, we're under pressure. We have got time constraints. People look for leadership in those moments. They want you to say, can you pick the round one, Paul? That's great. So they can get on with it. I think at the the when you've got a project less under pressure, you have more opportunities to be iterative and enjoy the process. And that's where I enjoy trying to see how people can explore architecture and take us somewhere a little bit differently
0: fantastic great, right. and, and just just to take you back thinking about you know you four being like the perfect team and having a, a good balance of, of of skills and strengths and you said that you've got a couple of people that joined you when they were 21 and they're still with you and I was interested in what do you see as the difference between you know who stays for a while and then decides to go off on their own and the people that know that they can build, you know, the career that they want by staying with you?
1: People either get the calling or they don't, the calling to set up in practice. I suppose we all got it, and we left BDP, and BDP are very generous when we left, and they, um, as I explained earlier. So I have to say, whenever anyone's significant has left to set up, I've never had an inkling whatsoever. So when Joe left, when Ben Gibson and Matt Thornley, who have Gibson Thornley who are doing really well now, I had no idea really that they would leave. And that, you know, which is a great to me is a great compliment to them because it meant that it wasn't I wasn't some, suddenly seeing sloppy work for the last year, quite the opposite. So I think what what out of those things, what you recognise is that there might be a few people who might, you might suspect, might be interested in leaving. So what you got to do is make sure they don't by giving them making sure you you motivate them with the, the work that they want financially how we deal with things so you, you you know you do keep an eye out for it but but my sense is once someone tells you they're leaving because they want to set up and practice there is no point whatsoever in trying to persuade them to to stay and I can see it in their eyes straight away when they tell me and because I did it myself once at BDP and I know and therefore, I just wish them the best and and genuinely say, stay in touch. And, you know, and that and that's the way I, I feel. You know, I think we've ever been bitter about anyone leaving. Occasions are often people significantly leave the, to awkward points in a project. You know, the project might be halfway through and the client loves them, but you've just got to deal with it. The firm is um, bigger than any one person. and And you have to, you know, we have to. Always survive that and always allow for that, but obviously you're disappointed they're going, and you know as much on a personal level as on a, an architectural level. But but then once they do, you know, Joe, I'm very proud of what Joe's achieved. His work's good, and he's he's still a good friend, and I, I have great pleasure in seeing how he's progressing, as I as I do other practice people. Like you know, Ben Adams has left, and as I said, Gibson Thornley are sort of up and coming, and I think will be successful. Paul Ruff, who's a, a smaller practice who left a couple of years ago Paul even helped me do my house as you say one thing we did talk about um, when we had our chat a few weeks ago is some of the bad stories you hear of people resigning from firms, you know and I do know quite a few well-known names where someone's joined us and I'll meet them at some do at the ROBA and they'll say yeah yeah he was never very good we we were really pleased to get rid of him and I thought that's just stinks you'd be surprised how often that happens or that that I'll get, we'll interview someone and say, well, they haven't spoken to me since I've said I was resigning, you know, and things like that. And and uh, I think it's really, um, which is great weakness, but also a lack of, uh, I think, grace in, in, in the great work that person will have done for them for many years. It's, um, you have to recognise, it's my, my firm originally, and I'm motivated in that. Not everyone can see their way through getting to the top of our firm. And I recognise that, or, or, or in a bigger, or in a more of a rush. You just have to recognize it.
0: It's a symbol of insecurity, really, isn't it? If people respond like that, I Mm -hmm. think, because they're almost denying that person's contribution in a way that's so emphatic that it makes you wonder how big that person's contribution was. You know, systems thinking would hold that companies, organizations that have that attitude towards people that leave, whose contribution isn't honored and recognized, they will, that stays within the system and they won't flourish.
1: Yeah, and there are, there are things, Louise, as well, where someone might have worked for a firm for, say, I don't know, five years, and the director working with them might not see their talent, and then they go to a different firm, and actually they're brilliant. And we've had quite a few people where it hasn't been as, as negative as they were rubbing. It's been more, oh yeah, I remember him or her working for us. And I'll say, how did you ever let them go? They're amazing, and they and they'll go. You know, generally, where are they? I said, yeah, they're amazing, and it's about how you light fires in people somehow. And I wouldn't say we always get it right. There's, there's definitely people who've left us who have gone on to flourish elsewhere that we maybe didn't recognise. So, I think for for individuals in practices, though, that might be something people think about if if they believe they have talents that aren't being recognised or not being used in the right way. Sometimes a move is a good idea. Probably not quite at the moment, but I think, or, or a proper conversation about that with someone. People do that with us. You know, it's with we looking after so many architects. It's quite hard sometimes to spot that people are frustrated by what they're doing. But it's 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 really key to getting more out of people and people in being feeling more fulfilled. And I think that idea of collaboration, which I think again is is something that's much more common now, but wasn't so common twenty years ago. And I think early on, we started to realize if we got a bigger project or a master plan, it would be really good to work with other teams and bring other architects on. Again, quite often that wasn't the case 20 years ago. People would just try and design all of it themselves. And that's where we started to see opportunities where it wasn't like asking someone to do a feasibility study. It was saying, look, here's a building. You can have a go at it. Our work is is much stronger for being a backdrop to all of that rather than us designing all those buildings. And again, I think I told you a while ago that one of the, I remember talking to Zeb Aram of Aram Design about this maybe 20 years ago, about, you know, we quite like working with other architects. We, we're not total control freaks when we're designing master plans. And he said to me that, you know, he's never seen his candle diminished by lighting someone else's candle. And I always thought that was a, a nice idea that it's, it's not altruistic. It shows that actually, you know, in some ways it's selfish. You get more, you get more kudos, more by giving away things. And I think that's always something we've enjoyed. We've enjoyed those collaborations.
0: Yeah, it's a lovely quote. You probably get richer places as well. Well, I'm sure you would say, because that's why you do it. You get you get richer and better places.
1: I think so, yeah. Yeah, definitely. Well, cities are built in that way, aren't they? That the, yeah. You know, so... Um, I mean, it's obvious, and you know sorry, we're not the only people who do it. Field and Clegg do it an awful yeah. lot. You know they did, did it on accordia. It's a great success but it, but it's something we, I genuinely really enjoy it because it's peer to peer you're having you know design reviews that are peer to peer, and there's a healthy level of competitiveness within it that because it's peer group pressure, and you you know it, it, it makes you you work really hard to try and achieve you know good architecture, something special. yeah.
2: How does leadership work within those setups, Paul?
1: I think on the bigger master plans, we tend to be the leaders, but that tends to be more about organising meetings, setting drawing standards for planning drawings, dealing with the planning negotiations, leaving them to design the building. So it tends to be, we would have more of an administrative. If ever there was one where someone was deciding, we were deciding on options for a certain area. We, would, we always say we'll have to make the final call, but I've never had to use that. It always is through the iterative process.
2: We're coming to the end of our time together. We were just going to wrap up with any tips you might offer to younger practices just starting out, particularly during this sort of rather uncertain time.
1: One of the tips I always have is to be be around and be seen. When we were young, we'd go to everything. Louise, the building design Christmas party to every opening at the RIBA, every opening at the Architecture Foundation. There were a lot more of them then. Get to know the scene and get to know some of the people who are around. Mm. So that's more difficult. But in some ways, I'm finding some of these web-based uh, talks and conversations just as good a way of, of, of seeing things. Some ways you can see more. But I, I think being visible was always important. There was some simple thing, you know, actually, if you're doing something, get it in the press. I think get it in the AJ, get it in BD, get it in Design. If you're doing stuff, get it out there, don't hide it. You know, our usual tip, which seems so, so obvious, to pay for the best photographer to take pictures mm. of your work, because it's the only record you'll ever have. Yeah, it's
0: a very good tip, actually.
1: A search for competitions. I mean, I still think for us, the biggest break was winning competition for a bus station in walsall in about 1995 which then led to a building and it took us from the world of back extensions and small refurbishments to being taken much more seriously and then still think the usual things that you know look in the magazine see who are the best clients try and see them maybe at the moment it's a bit easier to have a half hour cup of tea with the client you know we did a lot of that early on Pete does this, um, did this talk yesterday to LSA, which reminded me, it was almost like degrees of separation. So British Land, if I go 1990, Pete going to a rugby match that Gardner and Theobald had some corporate hospitality, met Ken Daita from British Land. We then go for a competition for a hoarding board with Morag Myerskoff British Land in 1992. We win it, build it. Five years later, we get a gym with British Land And now, 30 years later, we're building the biggest building in Broadgate with them. So it's a relationship that started 30 years ago. I think spotting developers or people who are more of your age. And what we found when we started, all the developers were were like my age now. We were still in our 20s. What you wanted is people you would grow up with. And that's the same as consultants too.
0: Got so much good advice there. So, yeah, meeting and social building relationships is the thing that really comes through.
1: But if there's one thing I do, it would be look out for a competition and really treat it properly and try and win one, because I still think that's the the best way.
2: Mm.
0: Well, that's, that's remarkably. A... You've been really generous with um yes. <laughs> with your tips and uh, the way that your voice fired up there as well. It's obvious that you know that a lot of those things were were um, deep beliefs. Yes, generous, generous with those tips, which brings mm. us back round to the theme of generosity. So. Um, you've been generous with your time as well. Thank you very much, Paul. Yes, It's been thank a you great for- conversation.
1: You're welcome. Nice seeing you, Nathan.
2: Bye, yeah, Bye. Bye, Bye. Bye. Bye.